Uh, you're listening to Crime Scene Today. Uh, we are coming to you from the International Association for Identification Conference in Reno. And this is a conference in which crime scene investigators and forensic discipline experts all get together to share uh, new techniques and technologies uh, among the world. We have uh, 24 countries represented at this conference, and we're lucky enough to have uh, one of those experts here to talk to us about a specific topic that I know that many people have great interest in. Uh, so Everett, thank you for joining us. If you could tell us a little bit of your background and uh, where you work and those things. Oh, my name's Everett Baxter. I've uh... I'm a sergeant with the crime scene unit for Oklahoma City Police Department. I've been in the, that unit for about 16 plus years. I um, also work, uh, uh, do some private consulting and training and teaching. Um, and I had numerous training classes around the country uh, in, in crime scene investigation, bloodstain pattern analysis, shooting reconstruction, crime scene reconstruction. And drones. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Uh, so drones have become uh, very popular among uh, citizens and uh, just aerial photography and those things in general. But we certainly have found a, a use and need for them uh, in police work. Uh, we have a little bit more limitations as the... Uh, public uh, has concerns of privacy issues and Fourth Amendment rights and those type of things. Uh, we get put on with a little bit more restrictions on what we can use them for, or regulations on uh, what we have to do before we can fly one and those type of things. They certainly have come down in price uh, from when uh, drones first started. So if you could just sort of walk us uh, through the differences between, uh, I guess, the, the, the public and the new regulation have come out and what a department has to do to actually, um, I guess, be certified or uh, be authorized to uh, operate a drone? So once you, you, you essentially establish a drone procedure, most of your agencies will develop um, a an SOP that they will follow. Um, the FAA has quite a bit of guidelines that are out there that are available, um, you know, certain such, you know, airspace restrictions that you cannot get into. Um, and, and they even go into the limitations and examining your aircraft, just like a, a pilot would get before you get on a, a Southwest Airlines flight going from Houston to, to out here to Reno. Um, they inspect their planes. You'll do the inspection. So there is there's some processes that you need to have an SOP set up that limits you or tells you what you're going to do. Um, and those have to follow the, the, the guidelines. Uh, once you have some of that established and set up, then the second step is establishing your pilots. Um, you, these, these individuals that fly those drones must um, study and take a test through the FAA. It's referred to as a Part 107 certificate. So the FAA does not give licenses or a pilot's license. It's a, it's, it's a certificate. So once you have that, um, it is the pilot's responsibility to ensure that they are flying safely, that they're flying within particular areas. So the, the FAA has restricted airspace in some places. If you're going to fly in a crime scene within a restricted airspace, law enforcement has to get authorization to do that. Um, there's several easier ways now for, for law enforcement to do that. There's another way that, that we can go through and, and make a phone call. There's a, a special number that a law enforcement agent can, can contact the FAA directly, give them their information, where they're gonna fly, and they will grant them authorization to fly that mission at that particular time. If you're outside of those those general airspace authorization areas, um, and you're in what we refer to as a Class G airspace, then then there's no authorization required. You still have to be safe. You still have to pay attention and make sure that you see any aircraft that's flying by. Um, a, an unmanned aircraft must give way to a manned aircraft. So you have a helicopter flying around your area. You're going to have to to land. You're going to have to get out of the way. So once you have those processes set up, um, then it's it's kind of what the department wants to look at. Who is going to be 
running that, that particular program, uh, who's going to set it up uh, and get it running and be the one essentially responsible for that program. Now, you talked about the restricted airspace and unrestricted. So now, as far as the public, they have to follow the same rules. They can't go into restricted airspace um, either. Uh, Correct. Um, and actually, as of, I believe, the middle or end, somewhere in there in May, um, a hobbyist, someone who is just going to go out and fly just to have fun, um, are now required to take a, uh, a short um, knowledge test that is essentially given by the FAA. So no, it's not the same test that, that officers have to take. Or any pilot has to take. Right. Correct. Um, so it, there's restrictions now for folks that are that are out flying um, with just a hobbyist side. You, you're going to have to take a test. Um, you're going to have to register your drone. Um, so these are things that, that again, these agencies are going to go through. They're going to register the drone. They're going to have pilots. They're going to have these SOPs put in place. So there's many uses for the drones. Why, uh, uh, you know, we've started picking them up. And so now I know that there's a, a wide range of, of pricing on these things uh, and some that can carry loads and, and such like that. So uh, what have you seen some of the drones used for police uh, wise at this point? Um, there, there are some uh, that, that they're tactical units. Uh, the SWAT teams, some, some refer to them as that. But the TAC teams, they'll, they'll have a, a standoff. Um, so they'll have a, a barricaded subject inside a house or inside an area. A lot of times these, these tactical units will breach a window or a door or something to throw in a phone or something to try to make contact with the person inside. So they, they normally have some, some opening. So one use of the drones, uh, a smaller, cheaper model, is to actually fly that drone through that opening and see what's on the other side. Gets you an idea, it gives you a visual. Uh, one of the gentlemen that, that was at this particular conference, um, they talk about breaching doors. So instead of, you know, sometimes having officers go in, um, you'll breach a door and send a drone in. So you're reducing the liability, or not necessarily liability, but you're reducing the, the risk of your officers. The risk of the officers, correct. Right. So um, one of the projects that I did uh, setting up for this particular conference is I flew a drone at 300 feet. You can't hear it. Um, took me eight minutes to fly it. It was about a... F the the air, actual area that I had was probably a good, I'm going to say, eight, nine hundred feet wide by about eleven or twelve hundred feet. So it's a big area. It took me eight minutes to fly it, uh, put it into a software, a photogrammetry software like Pix4D. Took me about twenty minutes to get a three-dimensional product. So if I have a, a tack team that is needing information or whatever, um, they want to do a layout, they want to sketch, I can generate them a almost two-scale three-dimensional diagram in 30 minutes. How long does it take them normally to get there, to get all their stuff set up? You do this pretty quickly, and you have a diagram, and it's it's two scales. So if there's a, a drainage ditch or a, you know, a slope to a road, that shows up in your three-dimensional product. Um, some of the stuff that you can also do is, is uh, export a, a 3D PDF. So I could give these people a PDF version of it, and they can look at it from, from various different computers if they need to. Um, so you, you can use that. Um, we have crime scene investigations, so we have an outdoor crime scene. So we go out and we'll fly a scene. We can, we can document evidence that way. And other processes, crashes, um, automobile collisions, car train collisions. Um, there is a, a plethora of, of uses of the drone for law enforcement. And the other use is surveillance. Um, they, there's, there's some, there are some drones out there that are capable of being put in an air over a mile away. The cameras that they have, a, a, an outdoor crowd that is gathering in an intersection, we can monitor those from sometimes a half to a mile away um, just by the use of that drone. And that reduces the, the, the risk of those officers. It, it puts them out. How can we then 
respond to that. It gives you another eye and another vision to see how a supervisor may send officers in to diffuse a situation that um, gives the, the least amount of risk to the public and the least amount of risk to the officers. Now we've seen, and you touched on many of them, we've seen the use of drones uh, uh, at events, uh, such as we have a, a big one in our area, Ironman, uh, the triathlon that we do, and um, you know uh, many people come to that. So I know that a lot of people have events where they'll launch this where you get a view. And these are things that uh, in the past, uh, if we wanted to do um, an aerial type of view of that nature, we had to use real helicopters, which are massively expensive to operate, run, maintain. Um, the same thing for uh, looking for missing persons and uh, uh, searching for suspects hiding in an area. Uh, all of these things uh, we used to use the large helicopters for and those type of things. So we uh, have reduced that need. Now we can, many of these drones will fit in a patrol car. Uh, they can be launched in the field. So, uh, but one thing that you touched on here, obviously we're at a crime scene conference and you touched on a little bit as far as documentation. Uh, we have many things to document. We use our video cameras and uh, we use our uh, photography on scenes and sketches and those type of things. And we even have some, uh, you know, 3D scanners and, and that. But uh, what uh, you presented on today is actually using the drone um, to uh, not only take photographs, not only get those aerial views, but to actually turn that into a, a scan of, of the area and to be able to take measurements. So uh, what's the process in, in doing that? So the, the, the software that I use, the photogrammetry software is PIX4D. <clears throat> it is a, um, uh, one, of, one of the most widely used softwares um, in, in the area. Um, it's mainly designed <laughs> for um, agriculture and surveying type processes. Um, it has now made its way into the public safety sector, the law enforcement, and their, so what it does is it takes photographs and it essentially takes the, the various pixels or the various points and it makes one photograph into thousands or hundreds of thousands of points. Um, the GPS that is tagged in the data on those photographs is used to scale it. Um, so you can't just take one photograph and go out there and get you a three-dimensional sketch. Um, some of the projects that I flew um, for for the, demo, the lecture that I had here um, entailed 544 photographs. Some of them are 200 photographs. So what you wanna do is you, you've gotta have an overlap of the photographs both on the front and the side. So you wanna have about a 70 to 80% overlap. So you're gonna fly overhead. Um, typically you think about maybe um, 100 to 150 feet is for, for the crime scene side, is typically your best height um, that, that, that you're gonna be able to get. You're gonna be above the tree level. Most areas, tree, trees are a little bit below now uh, here in Nevada especially around the Reno area. Um, some of those trees are uh, 80 and 90 feet tall. So you're gonna you're gonna have to adjust that. Um, 300 feet isn't gonna, I really don't have to, shouldn't need to fly around 300 feet. So if I can fly a little bit lower, 100, 150 feet, um, and take those photographs, I'm able to put those photographs into the software and it produces a very two scale diagram, a three dimensional diagram of what I have. Um, now, do you have to, does it, uh, you plug these photos in, it does it automatically? Is there uh, some, how hard is it to use the software? Uh, do you really need to be you know, tech savvy to, to pull this off? Uh, how difficult is it? Well, you need some training. So um, like with anything else in law enforcement, you need to have some proper training. The, the software is really not that difficult to use. So some of the processes you go through is that if you, if you fly a scene and let's say that uh, some of the photos didn't quite line up. So I've had a couple um, where one, one or two of the parking lot lane lines in a project I flew was 90 degrees. 
Well, <laughs> that's not a street. That's not a parking lot. Um, so I went in and used manual tie points, and I picked out specific points within um, that scene, and and I brought that back down into to a more processing where it's was actually what it looks like. Um, so I've had some where I've had to put 30 or 40 tie points. Um, some of the projects that I flew today, um, one of them I used three tie points, one of them I used 19 tie points, and most of them I didn't use any tie points at all. Now, when, when you're referring to a tie point, that's uh, something that links one series of photos to others or measurements to others? Correct, so, so let's say you have a, a, a mailbox. Okay, so at the top of the mailbox, typically at the at the street, you know, when they close, there is some point, some corner. What I'll do is I'll I'll find something of a common common area like on that mailbox, and and I'll that will become a tie point. And so in the software, when I I choose a photo and I I say I want to use this as a tie point, then I have um, I find it in a second photo, and then once I click an apply button the software will tell me and pull out every photograph that that tie point, that particular point is in. And then I go through there and manually make sure that those points are where they are. So sometimes they may be, you know, a millimeter or two millimeters off. Sometimes they're, they're feet off. So that's where, where you'll bring them back in to a, um, to, to essentially tie them together. Now, you talked about your flight time, and, and uh, to clarify, when you say you took 500 photos, obviously you're not having to push a button 500 times to take this. You you set something on the drone to set how many photographs over time, or how does that work? So you, you have a couple options. Um, some folks will fly in, in what they refer to as a PIX4D capture app, um, and that's a, essentially an automated system where you define a grid, a double grid, um, you define a, a height that you want to fly it at, and then essentially from there you say start, and the app takes, it starts the aircraft, it takes off, it flies the grid, it takes the pictures, and then it returns it in lands. Well, the other option is, um, and this is what a lot of, of pilots will do when they're flying their drones, is they will manually fly it. So they'll fly over and I'll set it to take a photograph every two seconds. And then I will manually fly in a grid myself. Um, and then, so I'm not necessarily pushing the button, although you can, if you didn't want to do the, the every two seconds, you could, you could manually push those photographs if you wanted to. All, all 540 times, right? Or how many ever you need. <laughs> I've, I've had some that uh, was in the neighborhood of eight, 900 photographs. So you can, you can, there are some things that you can, you can use the software and let it do now. So sometimes when I, when I, if I fly through the, the, I have a D, uh, Mavic 2 Pro. So if I fly through the DJI Gopher app, that, that is available. Um, DJI also has a, uh, the DJI pilot. So you'll fly the Matrice 210s, the more expensive drones, the, um, the ones that have the ability to zoom in from a mile to a mile and a half away. That does not, at this time, have the ability to take a photograph every two seconds. If you're flying the Matrice 210 through the DJI pilot app, yes, you're gonna have to push that button yourself. So now in, in talking about, because obviously the, the Matrice would be a more expensive model. So um, if I'm an agency that uh, obviously we always are concerned about our budget, no matter how big or small your agency is. But if I'm a smaller agency and I would like to use this for crime scene, what's a basic set of me? What can I get away with, um, whether it's the DJI Mavic or it, can the Spark work? I mean, what other options do they have? Um, you got to think about your conditions that are around you, okay? And that's gonna be a, a, a big key. So let's say that you have some pretty significant wind speeds. Um, even though the Spark and the, the Mavic 2 Pro and, and all of these fly off of GPS, um, the smaller the drone is, the uh, more it's susceptible to wind <laughs> that's gonna you know, from, from greater wind speeds. So if I have continuously having, you know, 30 and 40 mile an hour winds, 
It's like if you're an Amarillo. Then. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. sir. <laughs> there you go. Um, yes, then then you, you probably want a little bit bigger drone. Now, when we talk about the camera capabilities and the video capabilities, would the Spark work? Sure it will. Um, it, it would work just fine, but you don't want to... Um, you don't want to launch an aircraft and then have a 60 mile an hour gust wind and it blow into a car on the highway. You got to be able to control your aircraft. So that's where the bigger aircrafts come in. Um, I fly, a, a, like I said, a Mavic 2 Pro. Um, I have had no issues in some some really gusty winds. I've, I've flown it in 30 and 35 mile an hour gust winds and I've not had any issues with it. Um, so I guess the, the next step up from the Mavic, um, and actually I think they've uh, sort of come together now uh, as they've advanced, but I guess the next step up was the Phantom. I know they had like the Phantom 3, I think they're on the 4 now. Or where, is there any advantage from the next step up? Well, that's that's a question DGI is going to have to answer because from what I'm understanding, the Phantom is on back order, <laughs> to, so to speak. Um, they're not selling them anymore. They're not saying that they're taking them away, but they're not selling them anymore. So um, I think one of the areas that came in was that Mavic 2 Pro um, was such a, a much better aircraft. Um, it's got just the just as good a camera and video as the Phantom, but the stability of that aircraft kind of may have put the Phantom line out of out of uh, uh, out of work. Well, if if I if memory serves right, the the Mavic is also the one that you can fold up. Correct. So it's a little bit more. I've seen photographers throwing it in a backpack versus uh, that's not capable on the Phantom model. That's a pretty big aircraft. Correct. And, you know, I mean, some of the other things that folks have done, um, and I didn't mention this in the lecture today, but think about you, you have a drone. Okay. Can I bring this drone into this room? Um, and we're in a, a fairly big lecture hall. It's probably um, 30 feet tall. Um, it's 20, maybe maybe 30 by 30 by 30. Um, it's a pretty big square. Um, instead of flying the drone, can I leave it folded and use the aircraft photographs? So can I take photographs with my drone folded up, not flying it in an area, and still get my photographs? Sure you can. I mean, there's a plethora of uses for those things. Now, one thing that you had talked about, one of your scenes that you were on, uh, and I'm curious about, uh, you had, uh, I believe it was an officer-involved shooting, if I'm correct, that uh, you had uh, used uh, the drone to map it out, but then you also uh, were able to take that into uh, virtual reality, which has also become very useful and popular, and um, use that uh, to allow someone to walk through the crime scene. So what was the process of that? So in this particular process, um, we used a couple of different um, uh, documentation techniques or tools. One of them was a total station. When I do shooting documentation, uh, especially you know trajectory rods, going through bullet defects and whatnot, I like to use a total station in reflectorless mode. Um, it is the in the reflectorless mode. It's it's probably the most accurate measuring method that's out there. Now to pause for a second, just so people that uh, may not know, I know in the industry we just know it by heart, total station, but uh, that would be a, a survey piece of equipment like you see on the side of the road for them to uh, measure distance and level, and it's what you see construction workers using. We've used it for accident reconstruction for years, but that's, that's what it's called. Correct. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so you utilize that technique and you use that tool. Then we flew um, the particular scene, the whole, um, from the north end of the crime scene to the south end of the crime scene, and we were able to fly that. Um, and, and in that particular process, I think he took uh, just a little under 300 photographs. Uh, it took him 40 minutes to fly it. Some of the processes that I had him fly around some of the vehicles that were a little bit lower so you can get better documentation. Um, so there was there was some additional processes. Um, so then we take that particular information and we generate a, an output. We, we call it a point cloud. 
Um, we take that point cloud. Uh, the point cloud is millions of points that are, each point is in the correct and true XYZ points. Um, so they are um, in the correct three-dimensional location of where they are. And you take those, those point clouds, you import it into another particular program, import the total station data, um, put those, those, um, those two outputs, um, put them together or register them. And then from that particular process, um, I'm able to do uh, what they refer to as immersive 3D diagramming. It's virtual reality. You get the goggles, you put the goggles on, and then you walk back through. So you're walking through a two-scaled, essentially, diagram that was taken from photographs and a total station. So now is this something that... Um the software that you already spoke of, that you put your uh, uh, your drone uh, points in, is that the same thing that can create the virtual reality, or is there separate software that you need for that? At this time, there's a, a separate software. Um, the, the software that I use for that one is Ferrozone 3D, um, and it's the advanced version. So they make two versions of that, a basic version. You can do three-dimensional um, scale or, or sketches and that type of stuff. Um, you just can't import a point cloud and work in the virtual reality side. So the advanced version, I put everything in, I get my, my essentially my sketch, my scene map, how I want it. And then once you have that done, the next process is utilizing um, the equipment. So that's the other thing is you got to have equipment to go through and get ready to, um, to to get you into the virtual reality. So, and you spoke of, uh, I know Pharaoh has the software, but obviously Pharaoh also uh, has their uh, scanning station, which uh, uh, does the 3D scan and millions of points. And I know one of their competitors, uh, Leica, that uh, uh, we've used before. What do you feel the advantage of using a drone uh, versus uh, one of these 360 scanners, or do you feel that they are, they complement each other, or, or you can use one without the other? My my opinion on on scanners, drones, your disto laser, whatever you're doing to measure, they're all tools. Um, and how do you you want to utilize that tool? So. Can I take a, a drone and fly a scene and get the same product essentially that a scanner's going to get in maybe a third of the time? Sometimes maybe a tenth of the time. Um, if I fly a little bit closer, do what we refer to as we call it a point of interest. So it's a flying essentially a circle around a particular area and taking a, a, uh, numerous photographs. It's a tool. The scanner is a tool. Each one of them have limitations, um, and some of them have times where you just can't use it. So I have a Mavic 2 Pro. It's not weather. It's not waterproof. So when it starts raining, I can't fly. The Matrice 210, that's about a $35,000 drone. With all the equipment and everything that you have on there, it's waterproof. That's also when you got to push the button 580 times to take the photos, right? Correct. But the other thing is that the Matrice 210 um, also has a, a really good uh, FLIR camera on it. So instead of getting your helicopter up, it's raining, we're looking for a missing person, um, I can I can launch a, that Matrice 210 and I can search a field using um, the FLIR, which is the same heat-seeking device that you're in your helicopters. So it, it does, for crime scene, the Matrice 210 is way overkill. It, it's it's a, a drone that that is just going to do more than I need. So now does the Matrice come with the uh, flare, or is that something that it just can carry that load and you put a flare camera on it? It comes with one camera, and then you add on additional cameras. So the, the camera, if you're wanting to zoom in for over a mile away, um, that's going to, um, that's an add-on camera. The Matrice 210 has a payload, so it can carry some additional cameras. Um, some of those cameras run in the neighborhood um, of $10,000, $15,000. So the, the Matrice 210 is really not about 35 grand. It's, it's probably a neighborhood of um, 
12 to 15 yeah. grand but then the camera all the, all the accessories all the accessories those so if you get a, if you get a decked out matrice 210 you're looking at 35 grand um that's going to have the good it's going to have a good camera on it. it's going to have a um it's going to have a, a good uh, maybe a flare um, the other thing that you got to consider when you're doing your drone program and i, I didn't mention this earlier is the batteries um, so Mavic 2 Pro has a battery that I have 30, 31 minute flight time. So you go fly your scene. It takes about two, three, four hours to charge that battery back up so that you're ready to fly again. So you need multiple batteries. So for the Mavic 2, you're looking at about 150 to 175 bucks per battery. The Matrice 210 requires two batteries per flight. So I take that thing off. I, if, if I want to have the same flight time, I'm going to, instead of having four batteries, I need to have eight batteries to get almost the same flight time as my Mavic 2 Pro. Now the chargers that they come with, do they charge more than one at a time or do you have to buy the, I guess, additional chargers or accessories to charge more than one at a time? Mine has the ability to charge four at a time. They do have additional chargers that will charge multiple. Um, so it kind of just depends. Um, if you buy a third party uh, charger, you may be able to charge every single battery you have. So I know one of the uh, capabilities of cameras that's always judged on video is low light. So how do you find that the drones operate at nighttime in low light situations? I have taken a photograph um, the, at, at a, a two second exposure. Um, the Mavic 2 Pro has the ability to take an eight-second um, exposure. The, these cameras aren't just attached to the aircraft. They're attached to what they call a gimbal. So that allows that camera to be stabilized. Um, and it's, it, that's part of the aircraft. That's part of the, what comes with your aircraft. Um, so if you didn't have that gimbal, then just the simply flying, you would have a... a noise and vibration in your photographs. So you're able to take these photographs, you know, four or five second exposure. Lighted conditions, you're gonna have to slow down a little bit. Um, so you wanna make sure that the aircraft stops when you take the picture. Um, if it's a very well lit area, you may not have to, to slow down much at all. But if it's a, a darker area, there's not much street lights or, or available light you may have to slow down uh, quite a bit more just to document that area. Now, how much control do you have over the camera? Can you adjust typical things like ISO, shutter, overexpose, underexpose, those type of things? Yes, I can go to completely manual mode, just like the uh, digital SLR cameras that, that uh, most law enforcement use. Um, that drone has those same capabilities. I can adjust the ISO. I can do an exposure compensation. I can set the, set the um, shutter speed. So if I want to go down to eight seconds to four thousandth of a second, I can set that. I can set the, I have a little bit uh, um, on the, the diaphragm or the f-stop that you, you kind of limited in in what you're gonna um, because of the camera but the other functions you can set them now these uh, photos obviously taking so many photos and, and video uh, it takes up a lot of room and when you start talking about 3d imaging uh, that requires some computing power and I know you touched on that so obviously you're not buying the $200 cheap laptop from uh, computer store and pulling this off. So what's needed on the uh, end uh, end user for documenting this? The, the best documentation process, if you had a, a desktop computer, um, those really, when you're looking at gaming type stuff, it, it's gonna outperform a laptop. Now saying that, I have my, I have an MSI gaming laptop. It's a, it's got a, a gaming video card on it. So um, it's, it's, Gonna, and that's really something to look for. You refer to you know gaming a uh, laptop. Or, it, the fact that um, 
we're talking about video games these days, and that's really sort of the standard. There's there's so much uh, uh, 3D virtual reality imaging going on that they are pushing uh, the limits of our video cars. They've had to create faster cars, faster processors. That uh, really, that's that's where the standard. That if you want the fastest, the most powerful computer for video graphics, you uh, get a computer that is capable of playing the newest and fastest games. Correct. Um, your memory also, I have a 32 gigabyte of RAM. Um, you really want about 64 gig of, of, of RAM memory. Um, when I got my MSI laptop, um, I had a, a pretty good graphics card in it. It was, uh, the, the, essentially the second best graphics card that they made. Um, eight months later, it's now uh, probably in the neighborhood of the 25th. Uh, they make they've got a graphics card now that's got 11 gigabytes of video memory, um, which is probably eight times what I have right now. And that you know, so the more video intensive you have, the more RAM you have, the more photographs you're able to to take. So my laptop, if I have 200 photographs. Um, 290 photographs, it takes me about eight, um, eight or nine minutes to register the first stage. I've got some where I've had nine, 950 photographs and it's taken me four and a half hours to register or, or to go through that first stage. So now when you talk about the different stages that you have to do, uh, how much work are you doing? How much time uh, are you having to put into it before you hit that that button on the computer for the computer power to take over and do what it needs to do? The initial part is you're setting up the account. So it's just anything else. Here's what I'm going to call this particular project. Um, I'm, you know, you give it a name. Um, you're going to go through and set all of that information up. You're going to then import the photographs into the software so that, that it can... Um, begin to, to do the process. Once you get that set up and it takes, depending on how many photographs you want to load up, it may take as much as, as five seconds. It may take a couple of minutes. Once you get that done, um, you finish that, then you start the processing. Once, once you go through the processing, so there's three stages, you, you want to process each stage separately. So you start out with stage one. Once you say process, you walk away. There's nothing else that the user needs to be doing. So for those that that one project I was talking about that was four hours, I wasn't sitting there playing with it for four hours. I, I hit it and then I walked away. Um, so now when you come back after after it's done what it does for what you call stage one, what's your next step in the process? So then I want to review the, the, the particular um, product um, does it is, is the points and, and what they have is, is thousands and thousands of tie points that that the photographs were that created so I want to make sure that when I'm looking at those particular tie points is it correct so if if I have um, two layers in my project then I'm going to have to use manual tie points so that particular process going into manual tie points that's going to take some time that's actually setting in the computer looking at at a particular point on your on your tie points and then figuring out in the photographs where it is and making sure that they line up so uh, one of the projects took me a day and a half to do manual tie points would that be an, an average time or that was just a special um, project? I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is if someone wants to invest in this, what are they pretty much looking at on a, a typical, not that we have a typical, but a typical accident, a typical crime scene, uh, uh, not an elaborate one? Some of that's going to depend on the, the, um, the pilot. So if you have an individual that has um, really no understanding of what you're needing in the photographs, they're not going to do the proper process. Um, so take, for example, you got a, a, a fatal crash scene. So you fly at 150 feet and you're flying around at 150 feet and then you drop down to 25 feet and you're flying around both cars. They're they're pretty much stuck together. So you're going to fly around that. Well, you have a hundred foot and a 25 foot. 
Um, in PIX4D, a lot of times it'll look at that and it'll go, it'll may consider that two separate scenes and it'll duplicate your project. So you look in there, it looks like you're seeing double. Well, the problem is, is that the pilot didn't connect the two scenes. So when they were dropping from 100 feet to 25 feet, what they should do is, is just take a series of photographs as they're dropping down. So you take um, the same 70 to 80% overlap as you're dropping from 100 feet, slowly dropping to 25 feet. And then you fly around that and you do your, what we call a point of interest. If you link the two or multiple um, elevations or altitudes that you're flying, then sometimes you, you tend to have less um, involvement. Uh, most of the stuff that I have been playing around with, I've got minimal tie points. Um, so uh, if you fly it properly, you go out there and do what you need to do and you link the, the, the various altitudes, your your actual time where you're doing something at the computer is is minimal. So now, uh, so we went from stage one to stage two, and you said there's a final uh, stage to this. Well, once once you get stage stage one done, okay. So if you need to fix something or correct something in stage one, stage one is where you do that. Stage two is the point cloud and the triangle mesh. So if you if you just happen to to run all three of them at the same time. And you go back and redo something in your first stage, it deletes second, third stage. So you waste a lot of time. So do them one stage at a time. Do stage one. If there's something that needs to be fixed, fix it. Um, so at the, at the conference here, um, I did one where I used a video where I used my cell phone. I, I went in with my um, iPhone 8 Plus and I videotaped a hallway. Well, in stage one, I, I measured a door that I knew was six feet apart. In the software, it was 19 feet apart. So I want to I want to scale that in stage one. If I scale it in stage two, it's going to delete the point cloud, and it's going to get rid of it. So once I get the the corrections done in stage one, then I do the point cloud. Okay, and it'll do the triangle mesh. So what a triangle mesh is, it takes three points. It draws a triangle with the three points that are next to each other and it kind of colors them in. So if you got a lot of noise in your point cloud, you're gonna see this god awful blob <laughs> that just looks horrible. So at that point, I'm gonna go in and, and clean up my point cloud. And I, I did get my point cloud cleaned up and then I could rerun the triangle mesh at that point. Um, once you get that done, the final stage is a ortho mosaic, which is a two-dimensional, two-scale uh, representation of all of the photographs. Stage three is based off of the point cloud and the triangle mesh. So again, if you go back, stage one, any problems you fix, you use that in stage two. Anything that, that you need to fix in the point cloud in stage two is used for stage three. So it allows you a step-by-step -step ability to fix it. So now once you've done stage three, is there some export process? Uh, it, do you have to use the software to view it or is it, what does it export it? So when it goes to uh, the prosecution or defense, how do, how do they manipulate that or how do they view this, I should say? There's several different outputs that they come out. So the, the stage three, the ortho mosaic is a TIFF image. Um, so we're familiar, you got JPEG, um, which is your typical compressed file that you have. Uh, then you have a raw image and then you have TIFF. TIFF's an uncompressed. Um, most of your photo mosaics are several hundred megabytes. I've got one that's uh, eight, 900 megabytes. So I can't even open it up in, in Windows Photo. I've got to use a special, uh, it's a free free app to open up the, the TIFF image. Um, I can give that to anybody they want. Stage two, um, it generates a point cloud. Um, and it'll, it typically, you can export it in whatever format you want. The normal exportation is a LAS. Um, 
once you get the triangle mesh and, and that done, you can export a 3D PDF. So I can give you a PDF document that you can go in and manipulate in three-dimensional. That process, nobody needs any extra software. We all we use PDFs every day. So you take that PDF document, you open it up, you can manipulate that in three-dimensional. You can zoom in on it. So now, obviously, that's a little bit different than uh, the virtual reality that you were talking about where someone, I guess, um, I guess they use their phone or that's, I guess that's about most of the 3D headsets now. They put it on the phone and, and walk around with it or how's that work? When you're using in, in the crime scene side, um, you want a little bit greater technology. So we will actually put the goggles on your face. Um, the, the phone stuff and the goggles that plug into your typical cell phones, the quality is is not near as great that you're looking at. Plus you're looking at the 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 computer in your in your cell phones is just not capable of handling something this large that we have. So what type of headset would you be using uh, to handle something like that? Um, I have a Vive. Eight, uh, they, they have an HTC, um, HTC Vive. There's an Oculus. Um, these are these are about four or five hundred bucks to to get uh, the particular processes. Now I know that uh, at least I believe it's the Oculus. They have a uh, they have one that requires you to be connected to a computer, uh, and then I guess they have one that's freestanding. Uh, so. I gather you could use both, but is the freestanding one that is not connected to the computer, is that capable of handling uh, this type of imagery? It's the computer that you're going to plug into. So if the if the actual computer itself isn't capable of handling, no, it won't. Um, so that's, again, you're going to go back to that gaming type uh, computer, the laptop, um, your, your desktop. If you have a gaming computer um, and you've got a pretty hefty gaming computer, um, then you can plug into it. So the ones that are standalone, those are typically wireless. Um, so they're sending a signal to and from the computer. The computer is the one that's using it, and it's just sending the signal to your to your wireless headset. Um, the one I have is is wired into the computer, um, so you can you can move around a little bit. So where do you see, uh, obviously there's always advanced technology, as you said, you know, eight months goes by, your video card uh, is obsolete. Where do you see this technology, this future being in law enforcement? Do you think that at this point, obviously it's usable, obviously it's great benefit. Um, how do you see it improving uh, here in the next couple of years or so? Well, you know, you think about this technology, this this processes. Um, we're always looking at various ways that we can we can teach people, we can train people, we can evaluate people. So, can I go out and fly a drone in a crime scene, an outside parking lot? Can I set up a crime scene and create a virtual reality training facility? So, now I want to test you, or I want to put you through. Um, an evaluation process. Um, I can I can create a virtual reality um, training cycle, put you in that. You can go through. You can do measurements. You can essentially do photographs, video. You can take notes in virtual reality. I can record all this stuff and evaluate. So you know, I go teach a CSI class instead of having mock crime scenes that I have to develop and put together, I can do it in virtual reality. And then I can record it and we can review the process. Um, so the way that law enforcement is going is, is technology. If you're not involved in technology, you're, you're, you're kind of falling behind. Um, drones, the ability and the information that we get from from a drone, from a total station, from a scanner, um, the, is enormous, and it's that information that you can then plug into the virtual reality. So, the possibilities <laughs> that, that law enforcement are getting into is extremely endless. Before we touch, it. and I like that. 
I agree. There's there's a lot of technology here. There's a lot of great knowledge here. I mean, I'm honored to be around uh, uh, such masters in this field, uh, subject matter experts, many people that uh, talk about their disciplines and are passionate about their disciplines. And it's uh, just been an amazing time here with the knowledge and sharing that we do. Um, you know, we have uh, a little bit of time as we wrap up, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us about drones, educate everyone on how to implement this in their part. But uh, you you uh, are also an author. You have written a book. And I just want to give you a moment to uh, basically talk about uh, your book, your classes, your consulting company, and uh, how people would get in touch with you if they uh, need a class or if they uh, want to uh, uh, run a case by you that they need your expertise. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, when I was starting your expertise. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, uh, when I was started teaching crime scene investigations courses. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to provide the crime scene investigator with a resource that they could refer back to. So when I wrote the book, um, the publisher, um, the senior editor for CRC Press said, this is the only book like that out there in crime scene investigation. Um, so that was, that was my primary goal. I wanted to get a, a tool for, for those people that do the job. And then as I, as I was teaching classes, I got a, a kind of a secondary goal, um, and, and I, I did a little research. There's, at the time I wrote the book, there was 21,500 law enforcement agencies in the United States. 80% of those law enforcement agencies are 20 person or smaller. Who's dealing with your evidence? These agencies have small budgets. They can't afford eight, $900 training classes but they can afford a book. And that was my secondary goal was you buy a book for an agency, you're able to read it. So there's there's two books. There's a handbook, which is the general gist of, um, of how to process scenes. And then there's a workbook. And it gives you some kind of exercises to go through. Um, you, can, you can kind of work through those. And there's photography exercises. There is exercises on lifting shoe prints, footwear impressions, those types of things. Um, so it, it, it breaks down each category into its own chapter. Um, so I also, um, obviously I teach a, a two week, 80 hour crime scene investigations course um, where we, we use that book. Um, part of the tuition is includes uh, both copies of the book. Um, we do a lot of photography. So we'll start out, we'll, um, you, you may end up taking somewhere between a thousand and two thousand photographs in that two-week time period. Um, we're going to put a footwear impression in dirt. We're going to go through the photographing steps. So you're gonna you're gonna go through the steps that you normally should. We'll lift fingerprints with different different techniques. We will we will go through a gamut again of processing techniques. Um, I also teach. Um, shooting reconstruction. Um, I have a, a bloodstain pattern analysis course that I teach. Um, all of these are available on my website, um, ebjrforensics.com. Um, you can click a link. Uh, you can send me a um, contact page and they'll um, uh, give me your email information and through my website and I can I can contact you from there. And you have uh, links to your books on that site also? Correct. Okay. And uh, if they were to go to obviously CRC Press or Amazon, what would they type in to find your book? What's the title and uh, tell them your name again? So my name is Everett Baxter Jr. Um, the, the handbook, it's the Complete Crime Scene Investigation Handbook and the Complete Crime Scene Invest Investigation Workbook. And those, again, are they're available um, on a plethora of sites. Amazon, CRC Press. Well, ever again, I appreciate you uh, coming to talk to us about this. And, and certainly if anyone would like to uh, uh, bring Everett there for uh, training and many of the disciplines he's an expert in, or if you uh, want to uh, reach out to him with an email and see if he can um, meet any needs you have at your department, uh, we encourage you to reach out to him. So thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you, sir.